Hello, uh, my name is Peter Panarchy. I am a Mises Caucus of Oregon organizer. I'm the vice chair of the Oregon Libertarian Party Public Policy Board. Today, we're going to be talking about the history of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Uh, we're taking a break from our normally re regularly scheduled program to talk about World War I, just because I'm giving a speech in Seattle on Sunday, and I need some time to prepare for that. So uh, let's talk about, um, yeah, I guess uh, our co-host, Fahim, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm uh, Fahim uh, down in Southern California. Yeah, happy to have you here, Fahim. Do you want to say anything about uh, what you've been working on or? Yeah, basically you know, trying to see of how many uh, folks are going to be showing up uh, to the, the rally and, and also working on trying to get over some of these uh, objections that uh, you, uh, we've been hearing about uh, lately from different groups on going through a, uh, uh, like a litany of litmus tests, let's put it that way. So that, that's been an interesting experience. Yeah, honestly, we could probably just talk about that up front after we get introductions done, because there has been a lot of hate on this rally, which I'm not a fan of. But go ahead, Gregor, if you want to introduce yourself. Hi, Gregor. I uh, run a podcast that is uh, usually simulcast here on college called The Liberty Mindset. And uh, right now we're actually reading one of Mises's books called Planned Chaos. We're on chapter three. We just did chapter three this week. Um, and then I'm commenting on it a bit on my new substack which is gregor h at substack or gregor h .substack.com. free to subscribe um i kind of feel like i'm the contrarian here so i um you know happy to be here looking forward to it happy to have a contrarian would be boring if we all agreed uh and now i'll introduce uh one of my fellow members of the public policy board mr matt rowe go ahead Oh, well, it's good to be back again. Uh, for folks who don't know me, um, uh, I was the uh, two-term term mayor of Coke Hill. I was on the school board there, the city council, the South Coast DSD board. I, I work as a political uh, media and public policy consultant uh, with a little company that's called Bridging the Divide Consulting. Um, folks who are interested in learning more, uh, just look up on uh, Twitter or Facebook. Thank you, Matt. And as always, we will begin with a quote. So this quote, in regards to the possible secession of Ukraine from the Soviet Union, months before its dissolution, current president at the time, George Bush Sr., had this to say, freedom cannot survive if we let despots flourish or permit seemingly minor restrictions to multiply until they form chains, until they form shackles. Later today, I'll visit the mon monument Bobby Yar, a, so a somber reminder, a solemn reminder of what happens when people fail to hold back the horrible tide of intolerance and tyranny. Yet freedom is not the same thing as independence. Americans will not support those who seek independence in order to replace a far-off tyranny with a local despotism. They will not aid those who promote a suicidal nationalism based on ethnic hatred. We would later know this called as the Chicken Kiev speech and an urging for people in Ukraine to not uh, 
have nationalism, I guess, against the Soviet Union. So we're going to talk about a number of things here in regards to the timeline between, I guess, what happened like in the Soviet Union and the Ukraine war now proper. I would like to start with the, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. I think this is an important part of the story, especially because people like Anthony Blinken and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton have described uh, their aims in Russia, I guess, in Ukraine, as Ukraine being the new Afghanistan and aims to uh, bleed Russia dry, use their resources and kind of bog them down in an endless war. But uh, I think uh, Fahim can probably talk a little bit more about the actual arming of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan by the U.S. and kind of what happened there. Thanks, uh, Peter. So just a little uh, background. I um, I spent my growing up years uh, between uh, Pakistan and in Austin. I was in uh, Pakistan from 83 till uh, 94. That was uh, during the Soviet uh, uh, Afghan war. And uh, came to the uh, US in uh, 94. And um, so that whole time, uh, the fact of how the country was uh, radicalized and the sudden um, emergence of uh, really uh, radical uh, uh, religious elements that uh, grew up in the uh, uh, region, it, it just exploded. and. The influx of a lot of uh, Afghan uh, refugees, and, and and this is, I mean, it was every day we would see folks uh, coming in more and more, and, and it was a pretty uh, sad uh, uh, story. But at the same uh, time, uh, the thing that was uh, really um, uh, jaw dropping of how it. Uh, changed uh, the uh, change Pakistan uh, but also because of uh, a lot of uh, fundamentalism uh, growing in that uh, region it was largely uh, well anybody who's seen uh, Charlie Wilson's war or looked into operation cyclone uh, would uh, know the uh, history but there was a lot of uh, Saudi money also uh, coming in, and uh, and let's uh, uh, face it. As after the Soviets left, we basically just pulled the plug on the whole uh, thing. And the next thing you know, it was uh, blowback uh, coming back uh, to uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, by the same elements that we were funding. And the thing that I see a lot of parallels uh, over here in the case of Ukraine, the uh, thing that I find even more dangerous in the case of uh, Ukraine is uh, you're talking about a land bridge uh, that uh, connects uh, Ukraine to the uh, rest of uh, uh, Europe. And also with the amount of uh, sophisticated arms uh, that have gone in there, what's going to happen uh, to uh, that and if people are in a desperate situation uh, they, they'll sell anything to put uh, food on their uh, table so it's it's basically we're creating a situation that i think uh, uh, set the precedence of 
uh, is it uh, going to be a uh, uh, deja vu uh, again? So, no, I think that's very well said and important. Obviously, there's direct parallels between what's happening right now in Ukraine and Afghanistan, and obviously, uh, the United States just got done fighting a 30-year war in Afghanistan before they tried to put this on. <laughs> I guess, uh, Russia. So, I mean, a lot of like learned behaviors should be like from the elite. Yeah. If you think about it, I mean, the uh, U.S. Uh, involvement to uh, outright direct uh, war uh, started in uh, 1979 and ended in uh, uh, 20, uh, just last year. And even right now, technically, I mean, if you're uh, starving a, a country, uh, then it's like, okay, has the war really ended? Uh, so, yeah. I guess it kind of reminds me of something that Scott Horton likes to quote. Um, I forgot if it was Afghanistan or Pakistan, but a U.S. soldier walked up to a little town in one of these uh, countries and kind of asked like how it was going and they were unsure if they were Soviets or Americans, just because that is how long the country had been at war. They had never yeah. known peace before. Absolutely. Uh, Ed, does anyone else, uh, Gregor, Matt, want to have any comments on the Mujahideen, Afghanistan, or just how this relates to uh, the situation overall? Well, one thing I, I would point out is that if you look at the history of Afghanistan and, and women's rights, um, for quite some time before the Soviets took over and throughout the Soviet regime, women's rights were respected. It wasn't until the United States armed and trained the uh, radical Islamists as tools against uh, our supposedly more dangerous foe of the Soviet Union sort of like how we're arming radical neo-Nazis because they're fighting our supposedly so much more dangerous foe in Putin. As we saw, those folks took that training and those weapons and oppressed their own people and created a training ground for terrorists. I will say the U.S. didn't get any real blowback from Afghanistan, though, until we invaded a, or we, we um, pushed uh, Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait and put our troops on holy Islamic soil. And so we probably could have even avoided blowback for our, our, our involvement in Afghanistan. But we just couldn't keep away from picking at the scab of U.S. hegemony over the Middle East. Uh, that's all I would offer, is that if it wasn't for our involvement, the, the Taliban wouldn't be there today, no doubt. Now, I might disagree with Matt slightly, um, only because the history of the Taliban far precedes our involvement in, in Afghanistan, um, you know, and, and the hate that is often generated for us is as much as because we are a, um, not an, a non-Islamic nation. And yes, because we've done a lot of awful things over there. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to excuse us. Um, but, you know, the history of Afghanistan for the last 150 years, sadly, has been a conquered country, even longer than that. I mean, as long as history has been around, Afghanistan has been the crossroads of every 
major conflict in history practically uh and you know so it's in it but that's not i mean that doesn't i'm not trying to excuse it i don't think we should have been involved in afghanistan i didn't think about it. i didn't think so when i was in high school when it's when it sort of started um to me it was one of the big mistakes that uh the following presidents made in staying in there at all and then when we got heavily involved during the uh russian occupation in supplying weapons again it was to me it just reeked of the vietnam era let's get involved this much and then quit um and and does it have you know bearing on today's ukraine absolutely i question whether or not russia would have even invaded ukraine if had we withdrawn in a much more professional and neat manner um from afghanistan than what we did um i think that was putin's green light uh you know so yeah we're responsible a lot of, we're heavily responsible for this ukraine thing um and i don't like the fact we're heavily responsible for it and we're not helping okay so one thing i'm going to uh, push back uh, is the uh, part of when uh, there is this misconception uh, in the us of uh, they hate us because of our freedom i uh, even bin laden back uh, in the 90s uh he made it very uh, clear uh, that uh it is about us bases uh in uh in the middle east the uh siding of these uh despots uh dictators uh, in uh that part of the world by uh, the us the uh um, blind uh, support of uh uh israel uh, as well as uh he uh, mentioned uh, about the fact of uh keeping uh the oil prices artificially uh, low to boost uh, the western economies over uh the uh, uh at the expense of uh, the uh, oil producing countries in uh, the uh, middle east and personally from my experience uh i uh, had been in the us only 5 or 6 years when uh 911 happened and when i first started hearing uh, about the haters of because of who we are i i looked back and and i always uh, uh thought of I'm like i had never uh, come across somebody saying that oh uh, we hate the us because of uh uh michael jackson or madonna or our lifestyle uh, and all if any if anything uh during the 80s and early 90s i mean folks were uh dancing to all the uh american uh, tunes and uh, as well as uh, uh folks looked at uh, the us from a perspective of like okay you can be uh, uh anybody and you can make a uh, uh good life uh, out uh, in the uh, US it wasn't uh, but when it came to US foreign policy uh, yes th- there was always a, a uh, huge uh, resentment with regards to US foreign policy so that's 
and and I think uh, if I'm not wrong, uh, I know Scott has talked about it a lot. It was initially written by uh, in uh, Michael uh, Shore's book by uh, Michael Shore um, called Imperial Hubris. So. So yeah, so that's uh, basically my, at least uh, from what I had seen and when initially I saw uh, uh, the statements of uh, in Michael Shore's uh, book, I was like, you know what, those are exactly the points uh, that I can uh, see. And the closest example I can give you is if you look at uh, uh, someone like Khomeini, um, he used to always say the big Satan, the big Satan, uh, uh, and uh, talk about the American uh, uh, lifestyle and all, but, but there wasn't any uh, attack on the uh, U.S. till uh, the uh, uh, Beirut uh, barracks, uh, barrack uh, bombing. And because we were uh, there, Bin Laden's whole thing was he uh, said it's forget about their lifestyle it's about what they do in our part of the world so that was uh, the uh, blowback and which again goes to the parallel of what we're doing uh, in uh, ukraine uh, right now i just feel that uh, if you're gonna create these uh, radicals there there's uh, gonna be, uh, you have to be prepared for uh, uh, blowback. And so to avoid that, what are we gonna do? Spend more and more money on surveillance at our uh, domestic uh, expense? Why? Yeah, thank you for that beam. Gregor, I apologize, but we do have to move on to end the timeline here just because we have only uh, an hour, but I add on to that. Uh, the spillover, I guess, uh, is what you're talking about, the blowback. So the amount of weapons we've spent, like in Ukraine, from the U.S. side, we've already seen some spillover. I mean, there's people in Finland, I guess the Finland, the Finnish prime minister has complained that some of these weapons are landing in the hands of the Hells Angels and other motorcycle gangs. I mean, I love motorcycles. So I drive them as well, but uh, that's not great. And I guess in some African countries, I guess in Sudan and other places, they're seeing a lot of these weapons are falling in the hands of, of terrorists. So um, that's, that's not great. So uh, we should have a whole podcast, I guess, on uh, the Mujahideen and Afghanistan and like how it relates to today. But I think for right now, I apologize, caller. So I'll take you here in a sec, but we got to keep the timeline moving here. So we're going to move on to 1991, which the, is the fall of the Soviet Union. So on December 25, 1991, the Soviet flag flew over the Kremlin in Moscow for the last time. Representatives from the Soviet republics in Ukraine, Georgia, Belarus, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Moldova, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan had already announced that they would no longer be part of the Soviet Union. Instead, they declared they would establish a commonwealth of independent states. So that is kind of where we end there. And I guess before we talk about NATO expansion, uh, any comments on just, I guess, the general fall of the Soviet Union? I guess besides the fact that we all know that there were a lot of people that went over there from the U.S. I forget the exact name of them, but there was some attempted targeted destruction of the new Russian economy that was not great, but... 
uh, please go ahead. Anybody that has any thoughts on the fall of the Soviet Union? Well, the main thing with uh, when you mentioned about uh, the economists, like you, you guys have probably heard of uh, Jeffrey Sachs these days, uh, talking about uh, 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 the uh, situation in Russia and uh, Russia Ukraine, and he was one of the uh, Chicago boys uh, that went in uh, with the shock. Uh, therapy of basically privatizing uh, any uh, and everything under the uh, sun, and it uh, ended up uh, basically uh, as long as uh, Russia was just uh, bending o o uh, over uh, backwards for the, the U.S. corporate interest, everything was uh, uh, peachy. Uh, even uh, like uh, Clinton and. Uh, Clinton's best man was uh, Yeltsin at that time. So, no, I appreciate that. And uh, I guess Matt in the chat here. I guess I'm not really sure what the disagreement is. Uh, do you want to address that? Well, no, no. Uh, and forgive me for not knowing. I don't know uh, who KDOT is. I don't know if the but. Uh, um. Somebody saying that, uh, I, I don't know if that's Gregor's chat name or something or, or, or what, but let me just say, I, I think they're taking issue with the fact that I said the Taliban was greatly strengthened by our involvement in Afghanistan. I didn't say the Taliban didn't exist before our involvement, just as Azov didn't, uh, did exist before our involvement in the Ukraine. Obviously, the Taliban existed in the forces that made it, uh, just as Azov did before the Maidan coup. Uh, my point is we armed them, we trained them, we taught them how to be a fighting force, and we empowered them to do it after they vanquished their foe. Uh, th that was the point I was trying to make. Sure. And I think that's pretty hard to disagree with it. I guess on Fahim's point, uh, yeah, thank you for mentioning the Sachs group. That's who I was trying to think of. Like, like There was a deliberate attempt at destruction at the Russian economy to try to take advantage of the situation there. Um, so I'm going to take a caller here. Um, please, if you're going to call, talk about the fall of the Soviet Union. Hello? Hey, Brent. Hi. So the topic is episode of history of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. So you guys are talking about Ukraine and Russia or the Soviet Union? or? Yeah, we're talking about, um, I guess the general timeline of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. So if you have something on that, I guess, go ahead. Okay, so all the stuff that led up to the invasion, whether it's the, the fall of the Soviet Union, um, let's see, the, the, the invasion of Crimea, uh, the expansion of NATO, all those things, those things are never reported in mainstream media. And I have always wondered why that was the case and I always suspected there was some sort of like an agenda but I could never really put my finger on it until um, recently so it seems like the mainstream media is pushing a um, Russia bad uh, narrative and to be clear I do think the invasion was totally wrong and they are bad for doing it but the thing is the United States is probably worse because of their involvement in the Middle East. I don't even know how many countries they've invaded at this point. I mean, I can't even name them. I probably would miss some of them, but 
They invade so many countries. So both Russia and the United States, I feel, are looking at the history. None of them are really, uh, quote-unquote, the good guys. But if we're going to talk about the Ukraine, the, in, specifically the invasion and what led up to it, I feel like the history, none of the history really justifies the invasion, in my opinion. But it is important to know the history and the fact that the United States tries to paint it as if it doesn't exist, that's, that is very wrong. And I feel like um, that needs to be pointed out. People, the general public, they probably think that the United States is doing a very good thing by funding the Ukrainians, helping the Ukrainians protect themselves from an aggressor, but they don't really understand that um, the United States is interested in funding the military-industrial complex. So that's just what I wanted to say about that. Yeah, thank you for that, Brent. Um, yeah, I would encourage just a slight change in language. Uh, when you talk about the mainstream media, you should call them the corporate press, in my opinion. I think it's more accurate. They're not mainstream. Uh, they are the corporate arm of the uh, the government, basically. Uh, I would encourage you to read uh, Michael Malice, especially the Anarchist Handbook and his his work there. And I, I think you make a really good point about how like this is, isn't really reported. I, I would say it's global geopolitics. Um, I mean, they want them to have a, a certain narrative and they want like NATO expansion to be justified, which I guess is what we're getting into here. Um, did you have anything further on that? On NATO expansion? Um, I, I think that the provocation, um, I could see why Russia would be quote unquote nervous when you had like, uh, I'm in Southern California. I would be nervous if Mexico started putting more armed troops and stuff, it would make me nervous. But at the same time, um, that is Mexico's right. And that is, that is, um, the NATO country, that is their right to do that. But I could see why it's provocation at the same time. So it's, but I feel that in, um, social media, particularly the progressive side, they take that, they seem to argue that that somehow justifies a military invasion by Russia, which it doesn't. But the but I do think the the main issue is the lack of reporting on it, which fuels propaganda by the the corporate arm or whatever mainstream media, whatever people want to call it. They they don't by not talking about it. That's also a problem because it's fueling propaganda that and it's causing people to vote against their interests. So. In terms for the U.S., that's more of the issue, the lack of reporting. So Yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, I think that all of us here probably fall into the bottom half of the political compass, and we recognize all governments are evil, and we don't trust either the Russian or Ukrainian or American, for that matter, side in general. We have a more objective view right. that these people are evil and we shouldn't just trust anything on face right and we not ourselves and our family and our interests as opposed to others right and Putin and by like people like it seems like main the the like fox news cnn msnbc putin is the bad is the only bad guy and then when i go on these call-ins it seems like biden is the only bad guy but in reality they're all war criminals they're all yeah. they're all part of the war machine Every, putin russia they have a war machine, just like the U.S. They're, they're all bad, but the, but at the same time, like if we can't like if if we worry about living where there's no war crimes committed, like 
I'm not going to move to Antarctica just because my president, yeah. the United States president, is a war criminal. And that that's dates back to Obama, Bush, Clinton. I mean, all these all these U.S. presidents were war criminals, and just like Putin, they're all they're all bad. So this fact that one is better than the other is just absolute nonsense. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, I think right, we're going to move on a little bit here. Uh, Gregor, go ahead with your thoughts on this. Oh, I'm just with Brent. I just would also caution Brent to notice who the funding for La Raza is. Um, you know, that's something to look into since you live in Cal Southern California. But <laughs> you're absolutely correct in that, uh, it, you know, there is no innocence here. And having said that, you know, someone has to put down their foot. And that's one of the things that I'm starting to notice that America is real. I, I saw a poll today. It says 53% of the people are against sending more weapons to Ukraine now. A month and a half ago, it was 64% for. So things are starting to shift. That's good. And I think that's important. And I'm hoping we can figure out a way to extricate ourselves without getting in a shooting conflict. All right, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Um, so I guess I'll take uh, Brady here if you have a comment on this before we move on. Sorry for the wait there, Brady. Go ahead. Not at all. What's up, my libertarian brothers? Y'all are a strong cup of iced tea, I got to say. Um, yeah. From my previous caller. Long caller here. Go ahead. Good to see you guys back. And I was hoping to kind of set the tone of the conversation and shouts out to Peter, by the way. Um, if you guys have time at the end, I'd love to come up with some questions and some material for Peter with you guys. Um, but uh, I was going to mention the history of Catherine the Great and Alexander the Second. I don't know. I came in kind of late. I don't know if you guys had touched on that yet. No, not yet. That does seem like it's going to fall more on our like history episodes, but please like a uh, draw a line between Catherine the Great yeah, and I'll the keep, situation. I'll keep it really brief. Yeah. Um, basically in the revolutionary war, Great Britain had a blockade on trade with America. So Catherine the Great of Russia sent supplies to Canada, which made their way down into the colonies and enabled us to win the revolutionary war. So we have Russia to thank for that. And in the Civil War, Alexander II sent a blockade of some of the toughest Russian sailors to prevent Britain from sending aid and supplies to General Lee in an effort to break up the Union and make us easier to capture or recapture. And so we have to, uh, to thank Russia twice for our independence. Um, and I think that kind of sets the stage for this history in a kind of interesting way. That is a really good introduction. So I appreciate that, Brady. Um, all right, I guess let's move on to NATO expansion. So just a brief uh, quote here from the history.com. So President George H.W. Bush had assured Gorbachev during the Malta summit in December 1989 that the U.S. would not take advantage of the revolutions in Eastern Europe to harm the Soviet interests. But neither Bush nor Gorbachev at that point expected so soon the collapse of East Germany or the speed of German unification. So we all saw, I guess, the, the pledge, which has never been in writing to the contrarians, uh, that we wouldn't see an expansion of NATO eastward through Germany. We all know that like Estonia, Latvia, Baltic Republic, 
pretty much every country surrounding Russia, including almost now like Finland and Sweden, I guess, are on the, uh, the docket here. So does anyone have comments on NATO expansion or I guess this breach in trust, I guess, between the new Russia and the United States? I think when you look at it, the West came in and destroyed their economy with, you know, the the raping and pillaging of Soviet assets and privatizing it for pennies on the dollar with U.S. or Western capital. And they dramatically saw their standard of living decline after the false promise that things would be, you know, great under capitalism. And uh, then we broke our word on uh, NATO expansion. And I think uh, that were two big shots across the bow to the Russian people that we, you know, A, we weren't going to keep our word, and two, we were still going to maintain economic and military war footing against them. And that's the beginning of the poisoning of the well that's led us to. I think uh, over here there is a, a bit of a uh, parallel from post uh, World War uh, One because uh, during World War One uh, uh, the uh, British and the Germans were almost uh, fighting each other to a stalemate till we stepped in and we uh, pushed the scale so much in the uh, favor of the uh, British and then after the war they just basically uh, uh, didn't uh, let the loser lose in uh, grace and save uh, faith. We basically went out to destroy uh, them and the backlash uh, to that uh, was the rise of the Third uh, Reich. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not comparing Russia to uh, Nazi Germany, just to be very clear. But um, in the case of the, uh, after the collapse of the uh, Soviet Union, if you look at uh, history, so yes, it is a fact uh, that uh, verbally uh, NATO wasn't uh, going to expand uh, east of uh, Germany, but if you look at the timeline in 99, uh, Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland uh, joined NATO. And then by, uh, and, and then in 2004, we had the biggest uh, expansion. So you had Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, all uh, just uh, go in and uh, they were all uh, brought into uh, NATO. And 2008 was the time uh, when uh, NATO countries were trying to uh, get Ukraine and Georgia, which was uh, even at that time, as William Burns said uh, uh, in, back in 2008, uh, when he uh, quoted uh, uh, I think it was Lavrov at that uh, time also, where he said uh, Niet means uh, Niet, that's their uh, red line. But uh, then in 2009, you had Croatia and Albania become uh, NATO um, members. So it's basically this rapid expansion uh, of NATO uh, right at their uh, border. And the thing to keep in mind is that, I mean, NATO is not a golf club. 
uh, it's a military uh, alliance. So if you're part of an, a NATO, then you are operating with the same operating systems of uh, not only arms and all, but you uh, are in a position where you are putting in uh, uh, supersonic um, missiles on your uh, soil. So you're getting closer and closer to uh, um, um, Moscow. So it is, I mean, the closest parallel I can think of is if, uh, let's say if the uh, uh, situation were flipped around and you uh, have uh, them, uh, have Russia or China uh, putting in uh, missiles in uh, uh, Mexico, I mean, the ships won't be even come close before uh, things uh, uh, go uh, nuclear. Uh, so why would we do uh, that? I mean, that's a perspective that I feel uh, that at least in the West uh, or the uh, corporate uh, media, uh, uh, or the Western corporate media, doesn't uh, let uh, the uh, uh, masses know. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I think that was very well said. Um, does anyone else have any thoughts on NATO expansion, I guess, before we move on? Well, a, you know, a concurrence that we, that NATO, um, we, sorry, I'm an old guy. I still think of the collective group. Um, that NATO did expand it too fast. Now, with, when it comes to Sweden and Latvia, we have to remember they didn't, request access to NATO until after the Ukraine um, invasion. And that was, you know, uh, as a defensive move. But many of those other countries, again, you know, I, I just, I, I really am shocked at the lack of history that our leaders seem to know um, because this is per perfectly expected. Now, just because you're a NATO country doesn't mean you have nuclear weapons on your soil but it does give you access to air defense and other things that can reach far into the um, Russian Federation, which is, you know, where they're concerned. Um, so, yeah, now this, this whole expansion thing is, is, you know, NATO really, they're trying to turn it into a different kind of UN and that was never its purpose. And again, we're, we're trying to make a global government out of, you know, piecing, cobbling it together out of systems that were never designed for that. And they're in line. Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm going to take uh, Amanda before we move on to the next topic. Hey, thank you. Um, I just wanted to add that I think that it's thoroughly disgusting that we can get together and put all of our weapons so they're all compatible, but we can't fucking feed the planet. We haven't figured out systems of even giving power to more people on the planet without destroying it. So the fact that we've 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 done a bang up job on the whole militarization of our economy is really a strong bummer that we're spreading it like this. And by we, I mean the original NATO countries. Because I, I if I if I had a say, I would not have put us as a country in that position, but I just, the war 
and the militarization of everything is not good. Not good. So thank you for letting me express that. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, the opinion of this podcast and the Oregon Mises Caucus is that taxation is theft, but I definitely think that the resources are being spent in the wrong places, especially they'd be much better off in uh, places where they would actually help people. So we're going to move on to the Orange Revolution of 2004, 2005. And I guess for those that don't know, the CIA is probably the most evil organization that exists in America. They're responsible for a number of what's called color revolutions, where they basically form a resistance uh, behind a government they want to overthrow, funnel money into it, and funnel like what looks to be real resistance against that. In a lot of cases, these are really bad governments that libertarians or really anybody on the bottom half of the political compass would not be a fan of, but they are trying to foment like bad revolution against them for their own interests, I guess, not the people's interests. And it almost never works out in their favor. So uh, Matt, I understand uh, you can maybe walk us through what happened in the orange revolution of 2004. Well, not surprisingly, Ukraine, like the United States, has physical polarization and ethnic polarization. And, of course, one thing uh, that, that we haven't discussed so much is that the ethnic composition of eastern Ukraine predominantly is of Russian stock, uh, Russian-speaking, Russian ethnics, uh, that really migrated in under the Tsarist empires and then under the Soviet Union. Um, before Ukrainian statehood was even a real concept, frankly, when it was just the outer areas of Russia, as it was seen, sort of uh, the hinterlands, a buffer zone, a historical buffer zone, and a breadbasket for the empire. Um, I was going to say, one of the issues um, with that partisan split is they were getting, the elections were getting closer and uh, closer and closer, and... Um, Oh, gosh. Uh, Viktor Yushchenko was the front man for the Orange Revolution, which basically meant EU membership, NATO membership. Basically, he was Zelensky before Zelensky was cool, and he didn't hang out with as many neo-Nazis. And uh, Vladimir Putin allegedly had KGB try and poison him, which left him looking uh, quite deformed, which created a, a massive amount of sympathy leading up to the runoff election uh, in December of 2020, uh, excuse me, 2004. And uh, Viktor Yushchenko won, uh, even though the East voted overwhelmingly in favor of the more uh, pro-Russian uh, uh, candidate, uh, and uh, whose name escapes me right now because I can't even uh, pronounce it half uh, accurately. But uh, uh, he, he, yes, yes, and he took over, uh, of course, after Viktor Yushchenko um, uh, and defeated uh, his preferred candidate, and the the country reoriented towards the East again. Um, and, uh, again, on a very narrow vote and a, um, a, a very regional vote, uh, if you look at a political map, it is, it is just strictly east, south, north, and west is the split. Um, and, um, and so what happened, of course, as we know, and one of the reasons for the Russian invasion, of course, they would call it a special military operation, sort of like our, our uh, bombing of, of Yugoslavia, 
Um, they, they used the defense of right to defend, which was invented by the United States, NATO, and the British uh, in Yugoslavia. Uh, part of the Minsk II agreements was to stop the genocide that had start, started under the Maidan regime uh, that essentially handed uh, the Donbass to the Azov Battalion to ethnically cleanse. And, and so this was in violation of the Minsk II agreement, uh, which ended the hostilities of 2014. Um, and it was never honored. And as we know now, the Ukrainians admitted they never intended to honor it or the, the Western allies of Ukraine who helped negotiate. The Let's hold off before we go it's, on to the uh, 2014 Maidan revolution, because that's a separate topic, but really appreciate the content here. Um, does anyone else have any thoughts on the the Orange Revolution, I guess, before we move on? Well, I guess I didn't really need to cut you off there, but uh, okay. So uh, next would be the 2014 uh, Maidan Revolution, which is popularly seen on Twitter as a legitimate popular revolution that took the government of Yanukovych out uh, that was not popularly, I guess, agreed upon. And most people say that this was a, a true and fair revolution despite those facts that most people say that Ukraine is a bastion of democracy. Um, so uh, in my opinion, I think that this was heavily funded by George Soros and other U.S. NGOs. We all know the Victoria Newland phone call about how uh, then Vice President Joe Biden helped organize this, and it was heavily fought by neo-Nazi groups, whether it be right sector or the ASL Battalion. And even to this day, there's, it's a little bit disputed what happened after the peace deal uh, between uh, Yanukovych and the rebels uh, who shot first after the peace deal. Some people think it was the Nazi snipers. Some people think it was somebody else. But either way, it seems like the U.S. government had a heavy hand here. And uh, Matt, I guess if you just want to keep going on, I just want to make sure we had a transition there on topics. Well, I was going to say that basically as soon as Mintz II was agreed to, the Azov Battalion was given de facto control over the Donbass. And they outlawed the teaching of Russian. They prohibited uh, and uh, religiously oppressed the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, and they started a, a program of bombing and, and terror and uh, frankly, it meets the U.N. criteria for genocide. If you look up the U.N. Declaration on Genocide, which we are a signatory to and the Russians are, um, uh, it meets all of the qualifications for genocide and ethnic cleansing. Um, and so basically the Ukrainians created massive entrenchments and armaments uh, uh, positions along eastern Ukraine and the Donbas, preparing for war the entire time as they killed 15,000 people, largely of Russian stock, um, in violation of Minsk II and in violation of the UN Declaration on Human Rights and on the, char uh, the uh, resolution on um, uh, genocide. And that's what fundamentally, combined with the Ukraine uh, signing on a letter of intent to join NATO in November of 2015, or not 2015, of 2021, uh, is how we got in this mess to begin with. Yeah, definitely agree with that. Uh, we only have about 10 minutes left, so I think we'll probably focus on this area of history. Uh, comments on the Minsk Accords. I know there's uh, recent comments by Angela Merkel 
And I believe the, the French Prime Minister Marcon at the time, that the Minsk Accords were just a ploy in order to uh, militarize Ukraine before the invasion. So I guess we'll focus on Minsk, and then we could probably maybe talk about Crimea a little bit before we end. Well, uh, so with regards to Newland, I mean, I, it is thanks to WikiLeaks and uh, Julian Assange, who should be free. Uh, uh, but um, there was a famous recording uh, where uh, Newland was talking with uh, Jeffrey uh, Pyatt. Uh, and uh, basically, they uh, were uh, talking about like, okay, who should be the next leader and all, and, they, and she mentioned, uh, kept on mentioning this guy, Yats or Yatsenyuk. And, and so after um, Yanukovych was uh, overthrown, uh, guess who came into power? It was the guy uh, Yatsenyuk. And she herself uh, uh, on uh, that same recording had that famous or infamous uh, thing of like, uh, fuck the EU. Uh, so that's a, uh, and the other part that is uh, really uh, amazing uh, is you have videos of her during the Maidan uh, uh, protests and all going and passing of donuts to the uh, protesters. Just just think about the fact that if there was any country's uh, official, forget about a adversary uh, adversarial country, any country's uh, uh, official going out and passing off uh, donuts uh, if there's protests going on in the U.S. What will the uh, what will uh, our reaction be? And so it's something that uh, I think um, people don't uh, we take it for granted of like okay we can go wherever we want do whatever we want and there's not going to be any backlash uh, to it. No, yeah, I think that's definitely true. Trying to think of the best thing to add here. No, I mean, I think you probably said it better than any of us could. I mean, I don't think there was ever a plan for peace. There was only a plan for war. It was just a plan to delay the war. So we've got a couple of minutes left here. I guess we could just talk about, like, the results of the 2014 uh, Maidan coup and kind of how that led to what happened in Crimea. Unless, uh, go ahead, Gregor, if you had something. I was just going to say, it seems to me as we're as we've been going through this, including even as far back as World War One, but what we're seeing is we're seeing the the lack of responsibility taken by the um, fourth estate, you know, the uh, the media, the uh, new, the news, which is supposed to be the news media, as you call it, for the most part, the corporate media. Um, which is, as we know, in the pocket of currently in the pocket, you know, not telling us anything. I mean, how long was it before we heard about the uh, Palestine, Palestine train wreck in Ohio? That's, you know, it seems to be quite the environmental disaster as well as, you know, a terrible thing. Um, you know, and I, I hopefully with the as independent media increases, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the fact that maybe we can actually get some of the truth out and that will help push us in a, in a correct direction. But also with that, we're going to have to 
either vote people in or change the government, what is your choice? Yeah. I mean, so I think we're probably just going to stay on this topic for the last couple of minutes. Looks like we have another caller. I think uh, next episode, we're probably going to do a Q&A with Brady and to talk about the history of Crimea and I guess the failed peace that happened between uh, the Minsk Accords and the actual war that happened. But uh, go ahead, Brady, on your thoughts on what we talked about so far. I actually just wanted to apologize to you for the chat. In the chat earlier, I had like questions for Peter. Um, uh, and I mentioned my friend Peter is going to the actual Rage Against the War Machine rally. I think I got, maybe you got the two Peters confused. I've realized your name might be Peter as well. So I just wanted to mention those, those questions weren't necessarily targeted at you. Those were questions that I was kind of gathering in my head as like notes for my friend Peter. <laughs> so. Nice Not to be con confused with uh, my friend Peter, a great song by Alkaline Trio, uh, one of the best bands from the Midwest. <laughs> Excellent. Noted. Um, I got to check that yeah, out. No now. worries. Uh, nice to meet you guys. I'm lo look you want to meet there, Brady, if you wanted to finish your thought. Oh, I, I said uh, just nice to meet you guys. Looking forward to next Friday. I'll let you go, go ahead and wrap up. I don't want to take up too much time or space. No worries. Yeah, you're happy to answer any questions you have on Oregon Libertarians or the Mises Caucus, I guess, in particular, and kind of our thoughts on all of this. But yeah, thank you, everybody that, that joined us today. I really think we did a, a good history of everything from the Mujahideen uh, pre uh, the fall of the Soviet Union up to what happened in the uh, 2014 Maidan revolution. Um, I'm going to open it up on all of my co-hosts if you have closing thoughts on anything we talked about so far. Well, whether it be Afghanistan or the Ukraine or South Vietnam, it seems these countries where the government's at least a, a government over at least large portions of the part of the countries they govern don't represent the will of the majority and, and forcing people into unions they don't want never necessarily works. It's clear the people of Eastern Ukraine want to be with Russia. They had a, a vote on it last November and the portion and, and folks will say, well, it's a rigged vote. But if you look at the percentage of the vote that went for the more Eastern-oriented candidates in elections. The vote margins aren't significantly different in the Donbass from the elections that were administered by the Ukraine than those administered by the Russians. Under the basic principle of self-determination, these, these republics have a right to affiliate with whoever they want, especially under the, the fact that the treaty was never honored. Uh, the Minsk, Minsk Accords were never honored, and they were under a genocide. So call me crazy. I understand a lot of folks condemn the Russian government for doing what it's done here. But I would make the argument, what alternative did they have? They said for decades to stop. They went and made agreements in 2014 and 15 to say stop the bombing and, and, and the bloodshed in the Donbass. It didn't stop. And even after all that, they proposed... Uh, a, Europe, a European security framework of a, uh, of a NATO that would be independent of U.S. Uh, aggressive interests, uh, as they would see it. And after all of these attempts at diplomacy, after going to the U.N., uh, where we have the veto card there, uh, after all of this, 
how I, I don't understand how when we look at all of the conflicts in the world in the last 30 years, I would argue this one was as predictable as they could come. It was as obvious uh, as the nose on our faces. And I would also say that just like in Afghanistan, the folks uh, who are collaborating with us in the Kiev regime are going to be in for a very, very, very nasty wake-up call when this is all over. Because like in South Vietnam and in Afghanistan and in every other country we've backed where we abandoned uh, them at the uh, end uh, on the altar of American economic interest, they're going to be abandoned too, and the Russians will win this conflict. And so it's going to be bad for them all around, and hopefully the lesson of the Ukraine will be learned better than the lessons of Afghanistan. Well said, uh, Fahim, Gregor, closing thoughts? No, I, at the end of the day, uh, as much as, uh, you know, uh, people have uh, different uh, ideologies of free market versus uh, socialized economy, I'm like, okay, but who is it socialized for right now? Uh, it is socialized for the arms industry. And who's benefiting uh, out of this? the arms uh, industry. So, but, uh, and who is losing? It's basically the uh, uh, regular uh, folks uh, who are the ones who are uh, losing. And no matter what one may think about a, uh, uh, Russia and all, at the end of the day, we have, uh, we have control over, or we sh should have control over our own government. We cannot uh, affect what other governments uh, do. We can only impact our, uh, what happens uh, in the country that we uh, live in. So, uh, and we have a, uh, a moral obligation to uh, speak out uh, when our government is basically uh, doing uh, uh, all this uh, uh, evil uh, around uh, uh, the world, and um, and and in this case, I mean, we're playing with uh, uh, not just fire; we're playing with nuclear fire. So, do we really want uh, to be uh, doing uh, that? So, that's it on my end. I just want to thank, say that, uh, you know, history is such a wonderful teacher. Um, the start of World War, uh, was World War, I mean, World War II shouldn't have had to have been fought, but it was. And we behaved, we as a globe behaved completely differently after World War II than we did after World War I. And the results were completely different. But what got our goat was when we tried to be the peacemaker for the world, we being the U.S. specifically. And I would hope that we can learn that not to be necessarily isolationists, but to be, as long as you're willing to trade with me, it is not my business what you do in your country. And if you attack us, then we will, you know, then we will defend ourselves. But that's the only reason that we should have to go anywhere else is just to defend ourselves. And I don't want to see it. I'd like to see us change that mentality that we're the police of the, of the world because we are not and we have. Yeah, I mean, the United States became the monster it seeks to destroy.
I guess, in terms of World War One, um, and I guess the blowback of this conflict and what happens like with all these weapons and after the war is over, because I think Matt's right. I mean, we're going to find out probably in summer, hopefully before then, that the, the war will end and Ukraine will unfortunately like lose some of its territory, even though a peace deal in March of 2022 would have secured that. But that's not what the United States wanted. They wanted the war to continue and they hoped that Russia would bleed for it. And that doesn't seem to be what happened. But I want to thank everybody. And uh, yeah, Brady, good call out. So yeah, the only answer to authoritarianism globally is decentralization. I mean, to go into Rothbard territory here, uh, states are the ones that are able to commit this amount of violence. So if we're able to reduce the power of government, we will reduce the violence that happens in the world. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about, um, I guess, a QA and a from Brady some questions about libertarianism and we're going to continue the conversation on Ukraine and I'll leave a spot in case any of my co-hosts want to do some plugs. I guess I'll just say like follow the Libertarian Party of Oregon, uh, join the Libertarian Party of Oregon if you live in Oregon. Um, we're also at LP Oregon on Twitter and join the follow the Mises Caucus at LPMC Oregon and yeah, uh, spot for plugs. Everybody has them. Hearing my, no one. I, well, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Gregory. Well, uh, Libertarian Mindset, Mondays at 1 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. Uh, we're going through the uh, planned chaos with by Ludwig von Mises. And uh, feel free to you know call in and chat about what is and what isn't capitalism. This week was on communism and socialism. So that's a little bit of a broad subject. Thank you all. I would say that we have a lot in common uh, than we have an uh, uncommon amongst uh, people from different parts of the political spectrum and people can uh, come together and should come together on uh, alliances on single multiple uh, issues and uh, just uh, there's nothing uh, wrong uh, with uh, working with any uh, uh, or almost anyone uh, on uh, uh, critical issues especially when it comes to the issue of avoiding uh, a war especially a nuclear war so keep an open mind uh, just uh, talk with people because uh, uh, it's that's the only way uh, we're going to move forward uh, one, I would just say, if anybody likes what they're uh, what what they heard, uh, check me out on Facebook or on Twitter. Um, Bridging the Divide Consulting is my consulting company, and um, I, I would say, um, in closing, uh, folks, uh, it's great to listen to podcasts, but action, money, and votes are what determine outcomes in our country in our democracy, quote unquote, and listening to podcasts and go and watching the rally. And I encourage everybody to watch the rally and tell their friends to watch the rally this weekend. Uh, isn't enough. Uh, we need to write our congressmen uh, and women. We need to demand change and take political action. That alone is going to be the way we make change in this country. And to answer one of Brady's questions from the chats or chat earlier, 
the quickest way to end a war is to not fight it at all, if it's at all avoidable. And sadly, we don't do that in our country. And I wish it would be our foreign policy like it used to be uh, for 150 years before we became an empire. Thank you, uh, and have a great evening. Right, thanks, everybody. Uh, have a great weekend. Hope to see some of you in Seattle and hope to see more of you in uh, Washington, D.C. I know that Will Hobson, who's running for chair of the Libertarian Party of Oregon, will be in attendance there. So rageagainstthewarmachine.com. Please support uh, Bottom Unity and uh, cheers. Have a great weekend.